I know this is a little bit unusual. Typically, we have an Old Testament reading, and then we read from the New Testament, if indeed the sermon is from the New Testament. But I really wanted to read a, a, another New Testament text besides Revelation 11, 1 through 2, as a way of preparing our minds for what is communicated to us in Revelation 11, 1 through 2. So we will begin by reading from Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 15, and also verses 23 through 28 before moving on to the sermon text today, which is Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant, uh, that is to say the old covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. What are you now thinking of, brothers and sisters, except the old covenant temple, right? And the regulations that govern the worship there in that place as communicated to us in the Old Testament. For a tent, I guess I should have said tabernacle first and then temple. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, the writer to the Hebrew says, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Did you hear that, church? Christ has entered into what holy place? Not the one made by hands, but into the holy of holies, that is, the one in heaven, through not the blood of bulls and goats, but by the shedding of his own blood. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Look now at Hebrews 9.23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. What were those things? The tabernacle and later the temple and all the accoutrements there in that place. But they are defined and described as copies of 
heavenly things, of heavenly realities. They were purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's go now to the sermon text for today, which is Revelation 11, verses 1 through 2. There we read the words of John the Apostle. He says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So far the reading of God's most holy word. I do pray that we give attention to it and work and labor to apply it to our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, in the previous sermon that I preached on Revelation 11, 1 through 2, this is part 2 of a two-part little mini-series, I guess, on Revelation 11, 1 through 2. In the previous sermon, I spent the majority of the time trying to prove to you that it is best to take the word temple in verse 1 to be a reference not to a future rebuilt brick-and-mortar temple in the earthly city of Jerusalem, but to the heavenly temple and all who worship God the Father there through faith in Jesus the Christ in spirit and in truth. Do you remember that sermon? It was a few weeks ago now. I'm glad we're returning to this text. I think it is such an important one. But that was my objective, to prove to you that when we read temple there in Revelation 11.1, we are to think not of a future, literal, earthly, brick-and-mortar temple made by the hands of men, but of The heavenly temple, the one that the book of Hebrews was just referring to as we read in Hebrews chapter 9. That is the temple that we are to imagine and we are to imagine all who worship there. They are the ones, that is the thing that is to be measured by John here in this text. To put it differently, the measured temple of Revelation 11, 1 through 2 refers to the church of God purchased by Christ's blood and filled with the Holy Spirit as she worships not at the earthly Old Covenant temple of stone, which was a copy of the heavenly realities, but at the heavenly temple itself, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That is Hebrews 9, 24. That is the temple that is in view here in Revelation 11, 1 through 2. Uh, Remember the case that I made a few weeks back. I said, and I tried to demonstrate, that it is this interpretation that is most in step with the overall message of the book of Revelation. That it is this interpretation that is in step with the way that the apostles of Christ spoke of the temple. Do you remember it? Constantly we see in the New Testament this idea, for we are the temple of the living God, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.16. 
This interpretation is the one that is in step with the way that Christ himself spoke of the temple. The eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity, he tabernacled amongst us in his incarnation. First, or John 1, 1 and then 14. Christ claimed to be the temple. He declared the earthly, old covenant, brick and mortar temple to be desolate in his earthly ministry. And he promised to send the Holy Spirit to fill not the earthly temple, but his people after his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. It would be his people who would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It would be his people who would be filled with the glory of God in that way. And I also demonstrated that this interpretation, that is the one that takes temple in Revelation 11.1 to refer to the church, is in step with all that the Old Testament has to say about the temple. For the earthly tabernacle, which later became the temple, was never about the structure itself, but rather it was about God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people. That was the significance of the earthly brick-and-mortar temple under the Old Covenant. It was about God's presence dwelling in the midst of His people whom He had redeemed for Himself. The Old Testament prophecies concerning a future temple clearly refer to one that is far superior to the earthly temple of the Old Covenant, both in regard to its scope and the purity of the worship offered there. Read Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. And so when we read the New Testament, it becomes exceedingly clear that those Old Testament prophecies, types, and shadows all pointed forward to who? To Christ himself and and to the temple of the new heavens and the new earth of which Revelation 21-22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so when John in Revelation 11-1 was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. He was to mark off not a physical and earthly structure, but a heavenly and spiritual one. People were to be measured. That is what the text says. It was those who worship there at the temple of God and the altar who were to be measured. This is kind of all review from a few weeks back. And some of you are looking at me like, who cares? You should care. The, predo- the predominant interpretation today as, the, as people read through the book of Revelation and through the New Testament itself is to see this as a reference to some future earthly temple being rebuilt. But to view it in that way is to miss the point of Revelation 11, 1 through 2 entirely. What is being described here is the measuring off of the heavenly temple that Christ has entered into by his shed blood. The thing of which the earthly one under the old covenant was a copy of originally. He has entered into that most holy place being the high priest. And we have been brought with him there. That is the temple that we worship at. It is that temple and those who worship through faith in Christ who are measured here in Revelation 11, 1 through 2. So... With that in mind, I want to look more closely at the book of Revelation today to give a more precise answer to the question, where is this temple that John was told to measure? Uh, The Greek word for temple is naos. It appears 16 times in the book of Revelation. Twelve times it is translated temple. Four times it is translated sanctuary, in the English Standard Version at least. And I want to just look at these instances. Do you see why I'm doing this? Here we come across this word temple, Most people think brick and mortar. I'm saying no, heavenly temple, the one that Christ entered into after his ascension, after his resurrection, his ascension to the Father. Um, I'm making this claim, 
I need to demonstrate that it is true. And so let's look at all of these references or all of the uses of the Greek word naos in the book of Revelation 16 times, 12 times temple, four times sanctuary in the English Standard Version. Turn back to Revelation 3.12 with me. Turn back to Revelation 3.12. And listen to what Christ said to the Christians in the church at Philadelphia. After he delivered his message to them, here is what he offered them. He said, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. It is this, the the question I am asking is, is this temple of which those who are faithful to Christ are promised they will be pillars in, physical and earthly? We would have to say, no, it is clearly a heavenly and spiritual temple for it is, for it has Christians as its pillars, metaphorically speaking, and, and not stone. So speaking of a spiritual temple here, we must confess that to be true unless you and I expect this, that we will be turned into stone in the future and be literal temples of stone, uh, pillars of stone in this literal temple in the future. Turn to 7.15. Remember that this verse is contained within the little interlude that comes between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals. Also remember that this verse comes after the sealing of the 144,000 on earth. And remember that this verse is referring to those that John saw in heaven. So 7.15 says this, a great, well starting with verse 9 rather, excuse me, saying a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the vision. And these are the ones who now in verse 15 are said to be before the throne of God, serving Him day and night in His what? In His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. So is this an earthly physical temple referred to in Revelation 7.15? We would have to say no. This is a reference again to the heavenly temple. It is the place where God dwells in all of His glory. It is the place where His people are seen worshiping Him in heaven even now. It is the temple which is in heaven now where God dwells being surrounded by angels and the souls of the redeemed who worship Him day and night. The thing that makes it a temple is not brick and stone, but it is the presence of God with his people. There he is with them in a most immediate way. The next two occurrences of the word naos are found in 11, 1 through 2, which is the text we are considering today. We'll return to it in a moment. But turn down really quickly to eleven nineteen. There we read, Then God's temple, where? In heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy, heavy hail. Are you beginning to get this, that so far every single usage of the word temple in the book of Revelation is referring not to earthly brick and mortar temple, but to the heavenly temple, the one that the writer to the Hebrew says Christ entered into as our high priest by offering himself up. Turn to fourteen fifteen. There we read, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
Again, the word temple is used to refer not to an earthly temple constructed by men out of stone, but to the heavenly temple or dwelling place of God. Turn to 15.5. There we read, After this I looked, and the sanctuary, in the SV, it is the same Greek word, naos, of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Look at verse 8 of the same chapter, verse 8 of chapter 15. There John says, And the sanctuary, Naos, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is another reference to the heavenly temple or sanctuary mentioned in 15.5. Turn to 16.1. There John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Again, this is the heavenly temple. It is a place where God dwells, where He is worshipped, served, and from where His judgments flow. And then finally, we come to Revelation 21, 22. And here is where John describes the new heavens and the new earth. And what does John say about the new heavens and the new earth except this? He is careful to point out, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So it will be then, on that last day, that heaven and earth will become one. And it will be then, there in the new heavens, the new earth, that the presence of God, that the presence of God will be enjoyed by His people in a most immediate way. It will be in this place and at this time that all of the promises of God will be fulfilled in a most consummate way. There will be no physical temple made of stone on the earth in that day. For all of creation, we are told here in Revelation 21, will be temple. All of creation will be the dwelling place of God. His glory will fill all. His people will walk with Him and enjoy His presence. This is the thing that Adam tasted of in the garden but forfeited. When we think of Adam in the Garden of Eden, we are to think of Adam living in a temple. He was living in a place where the glory of God filled all and he enjoyed God's glory in a most immediate way. He walked with him. He did not enjoy it in a consummate sense. It was in a temporary sense. There was a probationary period that he was in. He was tested for a time. If he would have passed the test, he would have entered into what Revelation 21 describes, but he failed. And there we are living east of Eden for a long period of time. There we are living, only able to enjoy God's presence in in a small Uh, sort of constrained ways, so that Israel there has to go up to the temple to worship God, right? And here we are today as the temple, the church of the living God, uh, only some out of this world worshiping Him. God's presence and glory does not fill all as we sojourn in this fallen place. But what does Revelation 21 describe except the consummation when heaven and earth become one and the glory of God fills all things? John is careful to say, I looked, I looked for it, people. I looked for that temple of stone that in this day uh, the Jews uh, just recently stopped worshiping at for it was destroyed in 70 AD. I looked for it there and I didn't see it. There was no temple. There was no temple because there was no need of it because the glory of God, His presence, the thing that was once confined to Holy of Holies, right? 
that place where the high priest would enter once a year, but not without the blood of bulls and goats. The, the, the glory of God that was once confined there is now filling all. That is what John says. So we've examined now every single usage of the word naos, temple or sanctuary, in the book of Revelation. It might seem tedious to you, but I think it's kind of important. Words matter, don't they? You are not free to make them into whatever you want them to be. They mean something, and they mean something in context. Whenever John uses the word naos, temple or sanctuary, in the book of Revelation, it is always in reference to not something brick and mortar, but in reference to the heavenly temple and those who worship there, or the consummate temple, that is the new heavens and the new earth, which, will we, which we will enjoy in eternity. I want you to remember Christ's promise to the saints at Philadelphia at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, which we've already read. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, stay true to Christ. Do not bend in the face of persecution. Do not run after the pleasures of of this world. Stay true. Conquer. And if you do, I will make you a, a pillar in my temple. That is, the heavenly one as it is now in the temple of the new creation, which will come at the consummation. So I ask this question, does the hyperliteralist take this to mean that as faithful saints, we will be transformed into stone and become literal pillars in God's temple? Is that what you look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth? I think not. Even they, even the hyperliteralists, do not claim this. Even they would have to admit that this is symbolic language which speaks of spiritual realities. Even they would admit that when Christ promises that the faithful will be pillars, he speaks metaphorically and means that they, Christians, will enjoy God's presence in, in, in comfort forever and ever. We should not overlook the fact that the word temple is actually used one time. I spoke in an an imprecise way just a moment ago. The word temple is actually used one time in the book of Revelation to refer to a literal temple of stone built by man which occupies a small piece of real estate within God's creation. One time it appears with that sense. And it is found there in that text in Revelation 21-22 which we just read. And it is there that John says, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So the only time the word temple is used to refer to a temple of stone built by man, John uses it in that sense to say, I looked for one and I could not find it. I looked for one and I could not find it. I looked in the new creation. I looked in the new heavens and the earth. I was shown a vision of it. I I looked. I wondered, will that temple be rebuilt in the future? That temple that the Jews worshipped at under the old covenant said I couldn't see one there. Because everything at that point was temple. And so having now considered, very tediously I know, the way that the word temple or sanctuary is consistently used in the book of Revelation, it is not hard to understand then the meaning of 11.1, where John was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. What is he to do? Clearly, he is to measure not a brick-and-mortar structure, but the heavenly temple and all who are approaching God's throne there through Christ Jesus, who is our great high priest. By the way, we could have done the exact same thing with the word altar as we did with the word temple. 
demonstrating that this is not a physical and earthly altar, but the heavenly one that has been mentioned already numerous times in the book of Revelation thus far, 6, 9, 8, 3, 8, 5, 9, 13, and 14, 18, will also be mentioned in 16, 7. Uh, it, it's the same thing. This is not an earthly altar, but the heavenly one. The, the, the altar of which the original altar in the tabernacle and later the temple was a copy of. It was a copy of it. It was meant to point us forward to the heavenly realities that Christ has now entered into through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So John's task was to measure the heavenly temple, the heavenly altar, and all who worship there. Who are those who worship there in this temple? Well, we have seen that the elect angels worship there. Revelation 7.11 says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Who worships there in this heavenly temple? Well, the elect angels do. They worship God day and night. Therefore, they have been measured by John here in Revelation 11.1 and 2. Those who have been killed for their faith in Christ worship there. When Christ opened the fifth seal, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who have faith in Christ, me, those who have faith in Christ who have died and gone to glory worship there. Remember that John looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, he saw them standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They worship there in that heavenly temple. And it is also those who have faith in Christ who are still alive on earth who worship there. That's you and I, isn't it? Where do we worship, brothers and sisters? At an earthly temple? Are we called to go to it if it existed? No, in the new covenant with Christ as our great high priest, who is the mediator of a better covenant, the book of Hebrews says, where has he led us to except to the very temple of God that is in heaven? This is you and I. It is those who have faith in Christ, living on earth even now, who worship there in this heavenly temple. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, Revelation 8.3. Do you remember that image there? That there are prayers are coming before the throne of God. Here we are on earth struggling with trials and tribulations, suffering in this, this land where we are sojourners. But where do our prayers go? They come before the very presence of God. We worship there, even now. We have come to a heavenly Mount Zion, the writer to the Hebrews says. These are the ones who have been measured then by John. John measured the heavenly temple, the altar, and all those who worship there. That is to say, the elect angels, the saints gone to glory, and those in Christ who dwell upon the earth even now. We might also ask the question then, what does it mean to be measured? What is the significance of that? What does it mean to be measured then? And clearly, to be measured is to be protected. It's to be protected. It's to be owned by God. We are marked off then by God. By the way... Uh, in the seal cycle, in the interlude there, the same concept was communicated, but in a different way. The 144,000 were what? Sealed with the seal of God. 
They were sealed by him, indicating his ownership of them, that number representing all of God's people in all times and all places. They were sealed. They belong to God. They are therefore preserved and protected in the midst of trials and tribulations. Here, it's the same concept, but it's the uh, metaphor of measuring uh, that is being used. Uh, That is clear in this text. It's also clear as we pay attention to the book of Ezekiel, for example. And later on, we see something else measured. The only other time something is measured in the book of Revelation is in chapter 21, which describes the measuring of the perfect and pure new Jerusalem. Think about this. The only other time something is described as being measured is then, at the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, there John being carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain, he saw coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, right? So he sees this heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And the city is described as being perfectly cubed, 12,000 stadia, which is 1,380 miles. It's massive. It is 1,380 miles, 12,000 stadia in length and height and in width. Its walls are 144 cubits or 216 feet high. And it is of this city that John said, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there." They will bring into it the glory that the honor of the, the glory and the honor of the nations. Listen to this. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so the measuring of this city in Revelation 21 signifies, among other things, its security. And the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem the place where there is no temple because everything is temple, the glory of God fills all, is going to be perfectly secure. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. Do you get the the image here? This new heaven and new earth city of Jerusalem is going to be measured and it is going to be completely owned by God preserved and protected by him. Nothing unclean will ever enter. And this is also the meaning of the measuring of the temple and those who worship there in Revelation 11. The heavenly temple, here is the message of it, the meaning of it. The heavenly temple is secure. It is secure. God will preserve and protect it. He owns it. It is his. Therefore, he called John to mark it off. Pace it off, John. Mark it out. This is mine. I will preserve and protect it. Those who worship there are protected and preserved spiritually then. That is the meaning of it. Will the elect angels who worship at God's heavenly temple ever fall? No, they will not. They are confirmed in their holiness. They are confirmed in their righteousness. Will those who are in God's presence now, either through martyrdom or through death of another kind, will they ever fall from that place, from that position of privilege? No, because they have been measured What about those who belong to Christ on earth? Will they fall? We say no. Not if they are truly Christ because they have been already sealed by God, 144,000. But now we are told they have been measured by God. They belong to Him. 
They are his prized possession. He will protect them and preserve them. The heavenly temple is secure. Those who worship there are protected and preserved spiritually. That is true of those who are there now, the elect angels, the elect saints who have gone to glory, and it is true of those in Christ who are still sojourning on the earth. Uh, You and I, brothers and sisters, and this is something that I really do not want you to miss, we worship now at the heavenly temple. I think it is really powerful to make this point, especially as we worship today in a rather pitiful and dingy middle school auditorium. You know, this thing usually has all sorts of nasty stuff on the floors before you come here in the morning. You know, we have to put up curtains just to block the view of the the, the unimpressive wall. I mean, this is a very humble place that we worship in. And yet you come here each Lord's Day to worship the living God. It's very unimpressive, especially when compared to the glory of that old covenant temple. I mean, it was grand. It was majestic. It was a sight to behold. But we come here each Lord's Day to worship the living God. Why? Because we know that we are approaching him, not here in this building, as if he were confined to this place, but we know that we are approaching him as he is where? In heaven. And we know that his spirit is with us. For you, brothers and sisters, are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is with you. You have been sealed by him. You have been filled by him. And we know that as we sojourn in this world, we we look forward to that day when we will experience his presence in a most immediate way where his glory will fill all. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is constantly trying to urge Christians. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to Judaism, Old Covenant Judaism. that's, That's selling out for something less than what you have now. Yes, the temple is still grand. Yes, you enjoy privilege in society. Yes, all of those things are calling back to you you ethnic Jews who have professed faith in Christ. But don't go back. You'd be going back to something lesser. Because now in Christ you have, uh, have attained something greater. For you have not come to what might, may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest at this, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice, of whose, uh, voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken. And what is he referring to here except Mount Sinai? When the people of Israel under the Old Covenant saw the glory of God on that mountain. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you who have faith in Christ, have come to what? To Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to that. That is where you worship Christian not at the earthly temple, not at some earthly mountain, neither on this mountain nor that will God's people worship, but God's people will worship in spirit and in truth, Christ says. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled where? The writer of the Hebrew says, in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Man, brothers and sisters, to hope in a future rebuilt earthly temple is to miss the entire message of the New Testament and to misunderstand the significance of the temple from the very beginning. Christ, Christ has brought us into the heavenly temple when he came for the first time and he will bring that place to a consummation 
at his second coming. But in 70 AD, what was trampled underfoot by the Romans? Everything was. It was just all leveled to the ground. So there's obviously something symbolic going on here in Revelation 11.1 that wasn't exactly fulfilled in 70 AD. Symbolized here then, and this is what I want you to catch, is this truth. Though God's true temple is secure, that is, it is measured in heaven, and though those who worship there, either from heaven or from the earth, be secure, that is preserved and protected by the very presence of God in and with them, the church is also vulnerable as she lives in this present evil age. You get the symbolism here. So there is this sense that the temple is, is measured, it is protected. All those who are worshipped there are measured and protected. But there's an aspect of the temple, namely the courtyard of it, that is going to, for a time, be given over to the nations to be trampled underfoot. To put it differently, you and I have not yet come to enjoy the complete security associated with the fullness of the eschatological new creation city and temple of Revelation 21. Two things are measured in the book of Revelation. The temple in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, and also the new creation temple in Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, what is measured? Everything is measured. Nothing is left out. It's, it's the consummation. Everything is secure. The glory of God fills all. It is, is at the end of, it is at the end of time that we will enjoy all of that. But here in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, what is measured? The temple and those who worship there. But something is left out. The courtyard is left out to be trampled by the nations for 42 months, we are told. Uh, this reality, this truth has been presented to us time and time again throughout the book of Revelation. That when we think of ourselves as Christians in this world, we must think of ourselves in two ways. Perfectly protected, perfectly secure, belonging to God, and yet does that mean that we will not experience tribulation at all in this world? No, instead we've been told in the book of Revelation and throughout the New Testament to expect tribulation in this world. The temple of God as she is now, as she is today, prior to the consummation, must therefore be viewed from these two perspectives. She is secure, and yet she is vulnerable. This theme runs throughout the book of Revelation. The church is constantly portrayed as suffering and yet secure, persecuted and yet preserved. She, like Christ, her husband, is given over to trials and tribulations, even to the point of death, and yet through death she obtains what, ultimately? She obtains life. And that is why Christ said these things to us, that in Him we may have peace. In the world we will have tribulation, but take heart, Christ said, I have overcome the world, John sixteen thirty three. And so, as we think of God's temple as it is today, we are to think not of the earthly man-made brick-and-mortar temple, which under the old covenant was merely a shadow or copy of heavenly realities and greater things yet to come, but instead we are to think of the heavenly temple itself, the place where God dwells in glory and all who worship there in heaven and on earth, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is what is to come to mind. And when we think of this heavenly temple, we are to think of something that is both measured, that is owned by God, protected and preserved, and yet at the same time unmeasured, left vulnerable to the trampling feet of the nations. That is what is being communicated here in this beautiful text. How long will things go on like this? How long? 
The text says that the court outside the temple will be given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for how long? 42 months. The hyper-literalistic, futuristic, dispensational, premillenarian, there it is again, takes this number to be both literal and in reference to a reality future to us. Their view is that this text describes things that will happen primarily to ethnic Jews in either the first or second half of a seven-year tribulation. 42 months equals three and a half years. It is far better, and I think far more in step with the method of interpretation demanded by the book of Revelation, the one that I've been demonstrating to you Sunday after Sunday, to take this number as symbolic. All the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. Why would we take this literally? The symbolism associated with the time frame of 42 months or three and a half years is is beautifully complex, I think, in this book. In general, pay attention here, brothers and sisters, it represents a time of tribulation for God's people. That is what this period of time symbolizes, a time of tribulation. Oftentimes, it is specifically in reference to a time of tribulation for the temple of God. Certainly, the prophecy of Daniel 7 stands behind the number 42. In verse 25 of Daniel 7, we find a prophecy concerning a period of suffering that would be experienced by the people of God under one who would speak words against the Most High and would wear out the saints of the Most High and would think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Did you, did you count that? How long would this suffering be endured by God's people according to Daniel chapter 7? For a time, and then times, plural, and then half a time. In other words, three and a half. That is how Daniel's language is to be understood Time, times, and half a time stands for three and a half years, or 42 months. This prophecy of Daniel was initially fulfilled when Antiochus Epiphanes oppressed Israel and ultimately desecrated the temple from 167 to 164 B.C. I think it is very interesting that 1 Maccabees 1 through 3 and also 2 Maccabees 5, as well as the works of Josephus, all describe the oppression that Antiochus Epiphanes brought upon the Jews as lasting three years and six months. Okay, This happened prior to the coming of Christ, but the temple, the holy place, was desecrated by this heathen. Uh, and how long did it last? Three years, six months. It should also be recognized that Israel wandered in the wilderness after their exile from Egypt uh, for 42 years. We commonly refer to that wilderness wandering as a period of 40 years, but in fact it was a period of 42 years, two years passed before they were condemned to wander in the wilderness for another 40. And in fact, that wandering is oftentimes in Jewish literature described as a series of 42 encampments. And so what did they do? They wandered in the wilderness and they endured uh, trouble in that place before entering into the promised land, which is a type or picture of our salvation and our entering into the new heavens and the new earth. Also notice that the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Roman siege against Jerusalem leading to its destruction in AD 70 lasted, guess how long? Three and a half years. So we see that as we pay attention to the history of the Jews, as we pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures, this number, three and a half or 42 months, uh, it comes up time and time again and it is used to symbolize a period of suffering and tribulation for the people of God, often with an emphasis upon trouble for the temple of God. And I want you to notice, friends, that this same period of time 
is referenced again and again in the book of Revelation, but in different ways. Remember the principle of recapitulation, this idea that we're shown the same period of time over and over again, but from different vantage points. It really comes up here with this period of 42 months. Uh, look down at Revelation 11.3. You, you do still have your Bibles open, don't you? I haven't lost you completely yet, hopefully. So we're looking at Revelation 1 through 2. That is where 42 months is mentioned. But at, in verse 3, we have two witnesses introduced to us. We'll describe who they are, Lord willing, next week. And we read this, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for how long? 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. According to the Jewish calendar, one year is 360 days. 360 times 3.5 is 1,260 days. How long were these witnesses then called or permitted to witness, to do their work? 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, for a time, times, and a half a time. It's another way of referring to this exact same period of time. Look at Revelation 12.6. There, in that text, we are told of a vision of a woman who gave birth to a male child. Who do you think the male child might be? Christ? Definitely Christ. Because after a while, the male child being pursued by a dragon uh, was caught up to heaven. It is a description of the birth of Christ. But the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for how long? 1,260 days. This is a description of God's people, the church. The preservation of God's people. Another way of describing the same reality that though the dragon pursues God's people, God preserves his church. This is another way of referring to three and a half years time or 42 months. Look at Revelation 12.6. There we are told of a vision of a woman who gave birth to a male child. The male child was caught up to heaven. Uh, the woman being pursued by the dragon fled into the wilderness Excuse me, where she is nourished for 1,260 days. Uh, again, look at 1214. There the woman is said to have been given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent of the wilderness to the place where she's, she is to be nourished. And now how is this period of time described? For a time and times and half a time. The language of Daniel 725 is used here in a most direct way. Finally, look at Revelation 13, 5 through 8. Revelation 13, 5 through 8. There we read, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name who has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the beast is here said to have authority for 42 months, which is three and a half years or 1,260 days or a time, times, and half a time. What I'm saying to you is that clearly these are all descriptions of the same period of time. These are all describing the same period of time. 
As we continue on in our study of the book of Revelation, it's going to grow exceedingly clear that these are all different ways of referring not to a literal three and a half year period of tribulation that's yet in our future immediately preceding the end, but to the whole time between Christ's first and second comings, a time that Christ himself told us would be marked by trials and tribulations. These are different vantage points on the same period of time. And they're bringing a different emphasis each time. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are measured by God, but God is going to preserve you and protect you, though you be trampled underfoot by the nations. Here you are living in this world, and you are my witnesses in this world. And yet you are going to be persecuted as my witnesses, but God will raise you up. As you live in this world, you will be pursued by the dragon in the wilderness. You are sojourners in this place, but God is going to preserve you in that wilderness place. As you live in this world, the beast is going to blaspheme the name of God. The people of this world are going to follow after him, but you are to remain faithful and true. Do you get how the book of Revelation is working? It's the same period of time being referred to in different terms, in different ways, in order to strengthen the church in this present evil age, an age marked by trials and tribulations and persecutions and suffering and even death. Here in Revelation 11, 1 through 2, we are reminded that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And though we be trampled underfoot for these 42 months, metaphorically speaking, God is ever with us. We are measured and kept secure by His power in the midst of tribulation. This very truth is what provoked Peter to say this. And here is what I love. What the book of Revelation portrays to us through symbols is stated so directly in other places in the New Testament and in the Old. Here is what Peter said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, in this heavenly reality, in the sureness of your eternal reward, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is portrayed again and again through symbols in the book of Revelation is stated most directly and other places in the Holy Scriptures. So by way of conclusion, brothers and sisters, I know I've gone exceedingly long, or at least it feels as if I have, even to me, uh, this morning. How do we apply these truths to our lives? Uh, First of all, and this application has been made time and again, but I must make it again. Expect tribulation in this world. Do not be surprised by it. Do not buy in to the false teaching that is prevalent in our day, which is that God would never allow His people to suffer and His will for you is that you don't. It's contrary to the clear teaching of the New Testament time and time again. It's contrary to what is portrayed here in the book of Revelation. As God's people, you are secure. You are blessed. Nothing can ever snatch you out of His hand. Nothing can ever rob you of your right relationship with Him and His love for you. That is all true. He will preserve you. But we are sojourners in a world that is still at enmity with God. And we will experience tribulation in this place as we are faithful to Him. But know, secondly, that God's presence is with you. That is really the the thing being emphasized by the temple imagery here. God is with us. 
God's spirit is with us. We are to take comfort in him. We are to take sanctuary in him. Didn't you enjoy the preaching last week uh, from, from our brother Simon who preached from the Psalms? And didn't you enjoy how so much of what he had to say corresponds to what is being taught here in the book of Revelation to us? That God is our refuge and strength. That he's very present help to us in times of trouble. He is our castle. He is our sanctuary. We are to take comfort in him for he is with us. And remember lastly that one of our primary functions as the church is to offer up worship to God. What happened at that old covenant temple? Constantly. That is the place where God's people came to do what? To worship. To worship. And we, as God's new covenant people, are still called to worship, not at a structure made by the hands of men, but at the heavenly temple through faith in Christ Jesus, who is the mediator of a better covenant. He is our great high priest. We are to worship. And so we ought to take our worship seriously, brothers and sisters. We ought to value very much and honor and respect the Lord's day and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, as the writer to the Hebrews said. We are to gather each Lord's day as God has commanded us to, and we are to lift up praises to our God, praises by way of prayer, praises by way of giving attention to the reading, the study, the application of His Word, praises uh, involved with living an obedient life as we leave this place. We are to offer up our bodies to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him. The sealing of the 144,000 earlier in the book of Revelation really remind us, reminded us that we are preserved and protected as we fight a battle in this world. We were numbered for battle there, but the measuring of the temple here in Revelation 11 reminds us that we are preserved and protected primarily for the purpose of offering up worship and service to our God as we live in this world and as we await the consummation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the symbolism that is contained within it. It is rich, Lord. We thank you that these truths that we have spoken of this morning are communicated directly in other places in the Holy Scripture, but we, we are grateful, Lord, for the symbolism here uh, which just brings these truths to life, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would take seriously um, their obligation, their call to worship you in this world. And we do know, Lord, that it is our worship of you and our devotion to you in this world that often brings about persecutions, trials, and tribulations. Lord, but I pray that we would not shrink back but that we would take comfort in the fact that you will preserve us until the very end. Lord, make us faithful. Make us holy. Make us pure. Lord, I pray that our worship would be pleasing to you. And we ultimately pray, Lord, that you would see us safely to the very end when you make all things new as you have promised that you would. These things we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say, Amen.